0: behind the knife the surgery podcast where we take a behind the scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field
1: So welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. We are here. It's uh, Megan Akashup and Wudo. We are um, at the APSA 50th anniversary meeting. And sitting with us is Dr. Arnold Corrin and his wife, Susan Corin, And we are super excited to um, talk to them both about uh, Dr. Corrin's history and, and all the achievements and accomplishments he's made in his career. Um, he is professor of surgery at the University of Michigan. And uh, he went to Harvard College and Harvard Medical School, continued his training at the Brigham Hospital for residency in general and thoracic surgery and went on to do his pediatric surgery fellowship at Boston Children's Hospital. So he is a Boston native and, and we're here at the 50th anniversary celebration in Boston itself. Um, so Dr. Corin, why don't you tell us about your story and, and how you got to um, this prominent position that you're at now?
0: All right, you want to start from when I was born? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I... Um, I grew up in Mattapan uh, and uh, Dorchester in Boston. I uh, went to Boston Latin School, uh, which was uh, a free pr- a prep school, as you probably may know or may not know, and uh, then was lucky enough to get uh, scholarships for Harvard College and Harvard Medical School, and as I say, as you said, that brought me into uh, the possibility to train in, in uh, probably the most pre- prestigious University uh, in the country at that time. Um, we heard something about you
2: being the the last resident of Doctor Gross. I was,
0: yeah, I was, I, I was, I went to the uh, Children's Hospital in the training. There were no formal trainings at that time, so I went there as a junior resident, as a senior resident, and then as a chief resident, uh, and that actually happened in between me doing a residency at the Brigham, in both. Uh, general surgery and uh, thoracic surgery. So in, in the end uh, I did a lot of st- time in both places, but it was chopped up. Um, and Dr. Gross was uh, I was his last fellow. It was not a fellow. I was just, we didn't have fellows then or anything formal, but I'm the last person to be a resident at the Children's Hospital when Dr. Gross was still the chief. I guess that's a better way to put it. Um, and uh it, it, if you want some thoughts about Dr. Gross... Uh, Please, your, what was it like yeah, to be his resident? Uh, he was, uh, uh, he was an in, a very in, interesting guy. He was very quiet, super quiet. During the course of the day, you might talk to him once or twice. In the operating room, you didn't talk very much at all with him. He he was didn't, didn't like a lot of uh, talking in the operating room. And uh, he was a... Um, he's probably one of the most beautiful technicians as a surgeon that I can recall, certainly in the time I've been in this field. He he could operate anywhere in the body, and it would sound like that was his main specialty. And, of course, he was known for his uh, cardiac uh, uh, development, of pediatric cardiac uh, surgery. Um, He, uh, as you probably know, uh, was the first person to operate on the heart, he did a, a ductus uh, a division of a ductus, uh, and nobody before could do that and, and save the patient, the baby. Uh, and then he went on to be probably the most prominent in that era congenital heart surgeon in the world. Uh, maybe uh, the only other person we, equal to him would, would would have been David Waterston at Great Ormond Street in London, but he was he was the it. And uh, when I finished the chief residency there, is when he stepped down. So it's interesting. And Judah Folkman, who became the surgeon in chief, right after that, was uh, uh, I was I was still with him as as the chief resident there at that time. Um, What happened after that is uh, I um, went from the uh, finishing all my training. Uh, to, as I said, go to Norway for six months to w- work on this stuff. And then I came back, and I got notified by the government that they'd like to have me come join them. As a, uh, I was in the berry Plan, and they said, uh, you're coming in on duty now. And uh, at that time, the Vietnam War was probably at its height. And the biggest hospital at Vietnam was Da Nang Naval Hospital, which was... Very high up in the southern part of Vietnam, where it was being bombarded all the time, and the the hospital was actually just a big, huge tent with a with a thousand cots, and of course, what they need most of is surgeons, general surgeons, and thoracic surgeons, and so I had been in the Berry Plan. I had I, I was hoping I'd never have to go to Vietnam, but they called me up, and uh, we came back from uh, <clears throat> from Norway, and I reported for duty. Uh, it was my wife will probably remember the exact date better than I do but uh, we had a, the first thing everybody told me in the military is the minute you get there get signed in because your, your pay starts so <laughs> on a Saturday morning we had just come moved into Rockville just outside of Bethesda uh, to set, set, settle Susie and the kids and I went there to uh, tell them I'm here Here's his Commander Corrin. I had no idea how to salute. I had no idea where I would wear my uniform or anything. And in a way, I, was, I also was sort of a hippie at that time. I had long hair and, uh, you know, not, not what the military would like to be bringing into their, uh, their, uh, their hospital. So I, I came up and I said, uh, I want to, I'm com- coming here to report for duty. Uh, and I, uh, I want to get my name on the uh, the booklet there. And this b- a guy, he was probably a 20-year-old uh, f- a sailor there at that time, never did, said, you don't look like any commander to me. I said, I am. I'm really a commander. So, so they got the big wig in the me- medical center there to come up and see me. He said, hey, Doc, he said go have a good weekend with your family. Come here at 7 o'clock in the morning on Monday. We'll show, shave your hair off. We'll get you a uniform at Annapolis, which was about a 40-minute ride from there, because that's when all the uh, the first year at Annapolis flunk out. And the ones who flunk out have to give their uniforms back. And then when they give them back, they sell them for like $5. So I got my uniforms not for the regular price, $5. And then I came back to uh Came back and I started uh, working in the laboratory there, just waiting to be on the way to to uh, Vietnam. And, uh, you know, it's like a lot of things in life, you never expected that to happen. Nixon, who was not one I voted for as a president, but the only good thing he did is he wanted to get out of Vietnam immediately. And the first hospital they turned over was the Nang Naval Hospital. So I was there about two or three weeks, and the commander of the research facility called me in. And he said to me, uh, Commander, you know, not doctor, said to me, Commander, uh, i got some bad news for you. So I assumed I was going to go there for two years instead of one. And he gave gave me the story. He said, I know you're really looking forward to do all that trauma surgery here. And I'm sorry we can't let you go to Vietnam. And so they didn't know what to do with me, really. So they said, why don't you stay in the research lab here and uh, just spend the two years here? And then uh, I would do a little pediatric surgery at the main hospital. There weren't very many cases. And it was an incredible experience. I wrote wrote 30 papers. I developed – I I was probably the first person to do uh, uh, neonatal surgery. Uh, No, fetal surgery uh, surgery on lambs. We had a a whole facility there, and uh, we had a lot of these uh, – I don't know if lambs is the right term to use – who were pregnant. And so we could bring them in from that area that was run by the Navy too, and I did I did some early work on uh, on fetal surgery, and uh, did a lot of work with uh, a baboon uh, and male baboons and studying them for a really sophisticated study of uh, shock, looking what what shock was really like, uh, septic shock. And I, I ended up, I think probably at the end, did about 25 or 30 papers that I, pre- that I uh, presented at a couple of the meetings while I was still in the Navy. And then I had to decide if I'm going to go back to Boston, which I planned to do, because I never lived out of Boston really. And I got a call from one of the uh, pediatric surgeons who had just gone to Los Angeles to be the chief of surgery there. Uh, and. Uh, he asked me if I want to come take a look at the job uh, at the county hospital in Los Angeles. Massive hospital. I mean, it just, nothing, I've never seen a hospital that big in my life be at that point. And they, they had a fairly big p- pediatric population there, all of them injured and, in, indigent and they couldn't, you know, couldn't afford medical care. And so they needed somebody to take care of a lot of these uh, patients. And there were a lot of surgical cases to do. They had a 180-bed neonatal unit there with two doctors working there. So I went there. I don't know if my wife was perfectly happy about that. <laughs> with my two, my 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 three little kids at this point were, guy uh, driving around back uh, over uh, to California. Any rate, we went. It was an Very impressive uh, environment there. I couldn't believe, after coming out of the pristine uh, places in Boston, what it was like to operate and work in a facility that didn't have a lot of the uh, things you needed. But they had this 180-bed neonatal unit at that time. There weren't many of those around the country. And they had all these preemie babies that came in. And a a number of them had a lot of uh, trouble with uh, uh, being so premature that their ductuses were kept open. And if you know the story of Dr. Gross, the first thing he ever did was be the first person to do a ductus, to to, uh, close a ductus, before that all those babies died. And so it was sort of repeating that history at that time. And uh, they asked me. They they didn't know whether I was a cardiac surgeon or anything. They asked me if I would want to try to operate on those babies. And uh, I actually had done a number of them with Dr. Gross. And I said sure, and I went in and I started operating with them. We had uh, we didn't even have an anesthesiologist. The neonatologist gave them their little little. Uh, 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 I don't, it wasn't ether then, but, uh, uh, you know, enough sedation so that we could do the case very ra- rapidly in about 15 or 20 minutes. And so we developed a series. I think the first paper on it I wrote was 30 uh, uh, ductuses done in this environment with no deaths. and All the, all the uh, babies survived. And then what happened was that uh, the cardiac residents in the big hospital there got wind of the fact that I was doing this. And the uh, cardiac staff or adult cardiac surgeons. They didn't know anything about pediatric cardiac surgery. So they started asking me if I wanted to come, you know, do cases with them or I wanted to bring these cases into the uh, pediatric pavilion. And I said, yeah, sure. So I started doing real cardiac uh, congenital heart surgery. First, I couldn't have a pump because they wouldn't let me have a pump because I was not, in their mind, qualified to do that surgery. Uh, so I did a lot of uh, uh, cases that I could do without a pump, like pylorix like uh, 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 um, it was uh, right, um, I'm trying to remember which of the ones they did. I did some that I could do an in- inflow occlusion and rapidly open a, a closed valve, and they it with good doing the operation quickly, they did very well, and they all did. They survived, and then... They decided. Uh, one of the uh, senior surgeon uh, residents said, uh, "You know, I can arrange so you, we can do a surgery on the pump." And the guy who was the head of cl- uh, th- uh, uh, head of thoracic surgery there didn't know about it, and uh, I didn't care. So I started doing those cases—really uh, some complex uh, 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 surgery there. And then he found out he had the biggest practice in adult cardiac surgery in the, in the state at that time. Very well-known person, had developed a adult valve, and he uh, he tried to get me, so I kicked out of the hospital for being, uh, you know, doing surgery I wasn't trained to do. So I said, well, you know, I'm going to still do it until somebody kicks me out. And it, it was clear already after about a couple of months more that uh, I knew what I was doing and all the cases he tried to do it with the congenital heart surgery were all dying, so at, at, at that point near the end of the, I'm all near the end of the two years there, he had asked me if I would be interested in joining his pri- private group and be the, uh, the uh, surgeon to all the congenital heart disease and I almost thought about doing that and then I would stay at Children's Hospital in LA and do some general pediatric surgery and uh, I I, um, uh, I hesitated. But uh, I didn't think there was a great, uh, great opportunities for me at L.A. at that time to, to really get better and better in controlling uh, the amount of uh, uh, patients I could see. It was, it was very politically uh, un- unpleasant environment to a certain extent. And so uh, I got asked to uh, come look at this job here, the, the job I was in now for 35, 40 years, at, at Michigan, and they um, uh, they asked me if I would come take a look at it. They were interviewing people for that job. It was a very prestigious university and medical center, but they'd never had a pediatric surgeon there. They didn't believe they exist, and they were, that was the place that the first soft atresia was done successfully by Cameron Haight. So they were sure nobody could do these kind of cases except the, the adult uh, surgeons that were there. Uh, at any rate... I told Susie, uh, they asked me to look there. I went to look. Did I go the first time myself? I think so. I'm not sure. I went there the first time, and uh, uh, I thought it was very impressive. They had a new children's hospital there. It's one of the premier medical centers in the country. And it sounded like it might be worthwhile. I think she wasn't with me the first time. I think I came back because, obviously, they were interviewing other people and she, uh, I think she asked me at that time, what's the weather like there,
1: (laughs) Uh, as I recall.
0: (laughs) It's a classic. Uh, And uh, when I was there, it was spring, late spring, and it was actually very nice, beautiful. Ann Arbor has got a lot of trees around and everything. It looked like a a terrific place to live. So they decided to offer me the job, and they wanted me to come back again. But they asked me to come back again in the winter. And in those days, you got off an airplane, he just walked off the tarmac, you know. So they, no they were jetways. nothing, and they were arranging uh, uh, for me to have a, uh, a dinner with all the big wigs there and everything. And you had to get down, down that runway. And she was wearing her high ho- high shoes, and there was snow all around. And as she got to the bottom of the uh, uh, the steps there, she said, "What are you doing to me?" Said <laughs> the snow doesn't last. <laughs> so no, he said the
2: snow doesn't last
0: so. <laughs> <laughs> anyway oh. that was that was the start of uh, my career in michigan and when i got got there do you want me to keep going i can Yeah
2: up. and then so from that point what then led to the creation of your residency program
0: Oh that
2: was uh, that's way way later That was Well the biggest years Yeah was, yeah 20 years later Yeah what
0: happened was that... Uh, all the, all the specialty surgeons there, who are, all the specialty surgeons at Michigan at that time uh, were convinced that pediatric surgery doesn't exist. They didn't feel that as pediatric surgeons we could do the specialty and subspecialty uh, 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 operations as well as the specialists that do it, urologists, ENT people, thoracic surgeons, cardiac surgeons. And, of course, that was not true. What year was this? This was six, uh, uh, 74.
2: And we're still having that discussion and debate today.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. Which, seventy. You so know, the, the, uh, the general's people, surgeons, can think they can do the cases. No, we're just talking about what happened at first when I started there. And yeah, we started the, there in 74. Yeah, you know? in 74. And what happened is uh, I sort of knew that a little bit. Uh, but I didn't, when you're young, you do a lot of things that probably you wouldn't do when you're older, but I figured I could, I could get through that. And I, I was sure that I, if I just started doing cases that, and, and then do any case that was sent to me. And the wonderful, wonderful thing about a pediatric surgery is the pediatricians are your greatest friend, you know, and they don't want to send the cases to the adult surgeons. So I linked in with them a lot. They started sending me some cases. Uh, and early on, I was uh, sent about one or two esophageal atresias, and this is the place in the world where esophageal atresia was first done successfully. So it was it was a, a very scary thing to do, and both kids did well. They were fine. And Herb Sloan, who was the successor to Cameron Haight, who did the first successful esophageal atresia, and who... Then when Cameron Haight retired, did all of them after that with another younger person he had on his faculty, uh, literally was ready to kill me uh, in terms of doing these cases. And he came after I was, I was there a couple of months into my office. I had a little office, and he stormed in. He didn't ask if he could be invited or anything, just stormed in. And he said, I understand you're doing a soft-heal And I said, yeah, I did a couple of them. Uh, you can't do it. Just like that. I said, well, you know, they're, they're doing fine. They're working well. I think I did a good job. And he said, you're not trained to do that. I said, okay. I said, until you stop me from doing it, I'm going to keep doing them. So, of course, it was obvious what was going to happen. The pediatrician saw the results were good, actually better than what was happening when they were done by the adults. And uh, so they were right behind me. And... Um, about a couple of months later, I got a call to my secretary, and he asked, could I have a, a visit with Dr. Corn?" He didn't just storm into my office. And he came in, very polite. He's a very fine guy. And he said, um, I just want to tell you, you're doing the right thing. You should do all the esophageal atresias. And uh, because you're doing better than we do. And I said, thank you. Uh, and he, we became good friends. And about three or four months later, he was uh, the editor of the big uh, book of uh, thoracic surgery, two volume. And he and, and his younger guy, mate uh, had always done the esophageal atresia chapter in it, because because of uh, you know, Cameron Hate. So he came in and he said to me, um, "Dr. Corrin, called me Dr. Corrin. I was 35 years old." And he said, uh, "I think you should write the chapter for this book. For that, you know more about it. And I, and I, even though I'm the editor and I always done it, I think you should do that." And I looked at him and I said, "You know, Herb, I'm happy to do it. And you know what else I'm going to do? I'm going to put your name and Kirsch, uh, who was the other young man doing the uh, cases in, on the, on the chapter." And from then on, he was my greatest hero because. That process went on in every subspecialty. The urologists were going to kill me. You know, I was doing hypospadias. I was doing all kinds of reconstruction. And the head of uh, urology there, again, was a well-known international figure. Uh, and, again, he uh, didn't want me to do any of those cases, but the, he would send a, an adult urologist over to the children's hospital so that their residents could get the amount of uh, – pediatric urology they needed for their boards. And, of course, they saw me doing all these things. You know, the greatest thing is residents because they, they have no axe ex- to uh, you know, hit. They'll, they'll, uh, they'll, they'll go where it's the best. And uh, they all saw that I was doing a lot of these cases much better because I was trained to do it than the adult urologist who had no experience in pediatric urology. So suddenly I'm, I'm doing the urology there, and it went right down the line. The last one was ENT, because I did all the endoscopy. You know, that's the way we trained then. I did the head and neck stuff and everything. And he was also the dean of the medical school at that time. And he called me up and started yelling at me that I'm not, a, a, I can't do that. I'm not t- uh, trained to do it or anything. And, of course, that went that way, too. And then I said to all these, after I was a year or two with this, and I said to all of them, look, it, if you guarantee me that you'll do your best to uh, recruit subspecialists in your specialty that do the pediatric part of it, urology, uh, you know, uh, ENT, uh, all those things. Uh, I, I want I'll, I'll agree to give some of it back, or I'll agree to work together with them or something. I'm happy to have you do what you need to do for the residency and the training, but it has to be with people who know what they're doing. I yeah. won't
2: interrupt for a second. I just want you to tell about what it was like when you started there and it was just you and one other and how you
0: guys, you know, started with just a few patients and built up to such a wonderful program. Yeah. We, yes, it was me and one other guy. We, we never went ho- I never went home. <laughs> no, it was you and Bill Weintraub. Yeah, yeah, And then Mike Klein joined them. Yeah.
2: John Wesley in the early years,
0: yeah, it was it was. It's amazing when you see what's there today. But at any rate uh, that was uh, that was an interesting era. You only can go through that when you're young enough to fight back. And of course, uh, you know the field today is uh, you know pediatric urologists do all the pediatric urology and all the way down. But a funny thing happened about a year or two, a year or two later, one or two years after I was there, after I had had a good re interaction with her flown, And this is a funny story because, uh, you know, I was trained to do adult, th- I was trained to do adult thoracic surgery, as I said. And, uh, and I had my boards too. I actually took my board exam. A lot of people didn't do it from p- in pediatric. surgery. I did, I don't know why I was in the Navy and I said, why, why not? Bob, Bob Butler was going to take them. So we decided to go take them together. And, um, at, it was, I, I was sent a, a case of a 18 of a year old that had a carcinoid malignant tumor of the right upper lobe. And I had done these before and, and as, a, a, as, as a resident at the Brigham in adult uh, thoracic surgery. So they came to me, they referred to me, and I went in and did a right upper lobectomy on him. He did well and everything. And I guess somehow or other Herb Sloan heard about that. And he got, he got very angry again at me. <laughs> And he came into the OR, I'm just scrubbing for another case, and he said, I understand you operated on an adult thoracic case. I knew it was coming, you know. And I said, what do you mean? What do you mean by adult thoracic case? He said, no, you did an adult tumor in an adult in the children's hospital, and you can't do that. Uh, You're not board certified, and you're not uh, trained to do that. I said, okay. I said, well, let me start from the beginning. I said, number one, I can do it. Number two, I know how to do it. And number three, believe it or not, I have my boards and thoracic surgery. And you know who gave me my exam? You. <laughs> it was unbelievable. And then we were we were good colleagues in the medical center for all the years after that that he was there. We had a great relationship. It was it was just you know, it was way the way things were then, and that was just an exam, example of that that was in the really extreme, because all the other hospitals were beginning to realize that pediatric surgery is a real specialty, that we you have to look at what we do in a different way, that we, we operate on the chest normally, and we operate on the uh, urinary system. That's part of the specialty, at least at that time, and, of course, the abdominal uh, cases. And, and it took a while in Michigan for all those people to understand this is what was going on in Boston, what's going on in Philadelphia, LA, out in LA. And it, it was a changing uh, th- uh, event that was super significant for the field of pediatric surgery.
1: Can I ask you a question? Yeah. So, you when you were invited to write that chapter in the um, thoracic surgery textbook was, and then all of these events that happened where the field of pediatric surgery was developing as its own field, was that kind of the initial point that led to the creation of your book, which is now the the pediatric surgery textbook, or was that a down the road sort that of thing? That was down the road. Okay. That was down the
0: road. The, the, uh, the, the, the two textbooks I've been the edi- editor of for uh, uh, one for five years and the other one for f- one for six years. One for five, I forget it's the operative surgery. You know the black book. I, I don't know if you've seen that one. And the uh, and the, the the what we call the Bible of pediatric surgery, the two volume uh, book. The last edition was in two thirteen, and the last edition in the operative surgery was in two. F- it was about right that time two fourteen. I did them actually at the same time. And neither of them have been redone because I don't think people want to spend that much time to do it, and they feel they can do a lot of this stuff through, uh, you know, the uh, websites and everything. And I'm I'm not sure it's as, as nice uh, uh, of uh, a nicer a nicer way to do it than the old way where you got a full textbook. You want to look up something, you can really get a lot of information in one book. So, but I, nobody. Since I was the last chief editor of that, nobody seems to want to do that again. It's an enormous, enormous task.
2: I don't know, though. I'm seeing a theme of many enormous tasks that have been overcome in your career. And I'm just you know, having a great time picturing a young Dr. Corrin getting uh, berated, yelled at by numerous members of staff ahead of him. And uh, how, What led you to keep enduring? You said that you had good outcomes that you could show them, and what do you think led to those good outcomes in your, in your children?
0: Well, I think I was I was well well trained. I, I you know was I was a year of being tra- training in Boston Children's when Doctor Gross was the chief. The volume at Boston Children's at that time was phenomenal. There weren't too many children's hospitals in the whole country at that time. And, and, you did everything. and I, yeah, we did every. I mean, we did orthopedics at one point there at Boston Children's. We, I don't mean uh, you know, uh, uh, just you know, we'd fix fractures in kids, Coley fractures in little kids, and uh, we did. Uh, sometimes we would put uh, v- ventricular shunts in at that time at, at Boston Children's Hospital. You know, it's not a hard operation. You make a little burr hole, put a little catheter in there. So we did. We did just about everything. Uh, and I think we had the confidence to do these things because we were so well trained, you know. I mean, I spent, I got full training in general surgery, full training in thoracic surgery, full training in cardiac surgery of the adult, uh, adult cardiac surgery, and of course, magnificent training with Dr. Gross in pediatric surgery. And then all the things we did in pediatric, not non cardiac pediatric surgery. Uh, I don't know, you could say that's being pompous, but I I just felt very comfortable with it. I don't know, I can't say that everyone in my era felt the same way, but I felt comfortable enough, and I think I was honest enough, if I didn't know how to do something, I wouldn't do it, you know, so, and and there was so much good volume of, of material. One of the reasons I probably took the Job at the LH uh, Children's is with working at the county. I had all by myself. I had this huge volume of cases I was doing, uh, and probably and I was doing everything there. Of course, as I told you before, so it may sound pompous to say I felt I could do it all, but I, I did really feel comfortable doing all those. And you know, if I if I had a case that was something I hadn't seen, one of the things I would always do is call one of the pediatric surgeons in Boston. At the, at the children's Ani kalodney who, who's passed away and he was sort of a uh, somebody i had a lot of uh, interaction with he wasn't the technician that dr gross was but he was a wonderful teacher and he and i got along very well when i was in at the boston children's and so he would teach me a lot of things you know just telling me about a lot of different things, the way to tricks to do different cases that uh, are hard to do or to have to be redone. And uh, so, you know, I, I felt like if I really didn't know what I was going to do, I would be able to call somebody. And if I felt I needed a very experienced pediatric surgeon during those days in L.A., there were some very exper- experienced people there that I knew. They were in, mainly in private practice. And if I had a question they you know, with a 15, 20 years older than I was, I'd call them. And as long as I didn't get into their private practice, they were happy to give me advice. So
1: So you established yourself, you know, over that period of time. And then fast forward a bit to, sounds like you were getting requests from residents to, you know, train train them. And then you ended up developing this uh, residency program or fellowship. Can you talk to us about kind of the development of that?
0: One thing maybe to go back on uh, uh, a little bit is that uh, during that era, was, as I was working in uh, L.A., uh, which was about two and a half years, as I said it was n- clear to me that I probably could not th- be there permanently because there was no room at that time to have somebody be a staff surgeon at L.A. Children's and survive. And I don't, I didn't feel like, although I had enormous amount of a, exposure to surgery at the L.A. County, I didn't think I wanted to spend the rest of my life there. On the other hand, uh, my wife and my kids love living in L.A. And so looking at other jobs was sort of a two-edged sword. Uh, And then when they asked me to to come to Michigan, uh, it was, um, I I I let her uh, answer that question were you unhappy leaving Los Angeles I hated it <laughs> yeah we yeah. had made good friends in a short period of time it was, yeah it was a unique um, community we lived near children's hospital and the public school was right across the street so it was, yeah and it was la it in was those good. days mm-hmm. was not as crowded as it is now and it was a beautiful place to live but I from a professional point of view I had a lab uh, that I wanted to have, I had done a fair amount of lab work, et cetera, and it was impossible to do it there. It was just a clinical program, especially in the county and at L.A. Children. So, I decided maybe that wasn't the way to continue my career. And then when they asked me to look at this job in uh, in, uh, in Michigan, uh, it sounded like it was a it was a great university, number one, and that was enticed me the most. That it's such a big university. Not having any pediatric surgery there done, there's probably got a. It has to be a way that that'll get into the, in the area there. It needed a cap, and Detroit Children's had been around for a long, long time. But a lot of people didn't want to go down there for their babies' operations. You know, Detroit was a not a very nice place to be at that time. So it was ripe to have a real good children's hospital. And I only when you're as young as I was then do you believe in that. And uh, but it really happened. And then the next the the rest of it was an incredible career of uh, going uh, from this little children's hospital uh, where we were there for the new children's hospital came in in uh, 2010, I think. And it got kept. We kept expanding the the old one, but it it was it needed to be redone. And then in 2011, they built one of the biggest children's hospitals in the world. The new Vermont Children's Hospital of three uh, uh, hundred and seventy-five beds, twenty operating rooms, just an f- enormous facility. I was already retired by that by the time they opened it. I was there when they were for years deciding how they're going to do it. But I never. It's like building a house that you know never live in, and uh, but uh, it's it's a great facility there now. So
2: we'd love to ask our experts how they would do a particular technique. And you, having trained under Dr. Gross, could you walk us through how you do that
0: PDA duct ligation the way Dr. Gross trained you to do it? Obviously, I don't do those anymore. We did it through a, uh, a left thoracotomy, a high one. We never cu- uh, cut a bone, cut a, hardly cut a, a muscle there. And then we would dissect out the, uh, the two ends of the ductus. Uh, at that time, Dr. Gross, and, and this is a long time ago, so I don't know what they're doing today. I don't do cardiac surgery anymore. And then Dr. Gross, unlike Dr. Potts, is the other person you probably know the name of the of the congenital heart surgeon uh, who was doing cardiac surgery in uh, in Chicago. Uh, was doing them with, from what I understand, I never saw him do with clamps that had little teeth in them. And, Dr. Gr- and a number of those could tear through this very delicate ductus. And Dr. Gross did not, when he started doing that, and, and he didn't get, they were dying, they were bleeding. And uh, when Dr. Gross started to do it, he decided that he needed something very soft and delicate. So he took a little bit of rubber, a rubber cover, and put it over a plain old clamp. And when he would close it, it, you wouldn't get iron teeth coming through. You just feel the softness, of, but enough to hold the ductus closed uh, of the uh, with that little bit of rubber there, and that's why they, this one did. The first one that he successfully done did didn't bleed. I was a fourth year medical student when Doctor Gr- when Lucian was a resident uh, from the Mass General going through uh, the Children's Hospital, and uh, he was getting a ductus. Uh, set up for Doctor Gross to come in, and he he was near the end of his year there. And uh, what happened is um, the clamp started slipping. See, it wasn't as good as the pots clamp that had teeth in it. it. Started slipping, and it started slipping. And he was, and he had already cut the ductus, and so, and he hadn't sewed it yet. So uh, he um, he was sweating a fair amount, he, he sent to Dr. Gross who was going to come in. Dr. Gross comes in as he always did with his white coat and puts his mouth like that when he got into the operating room and he asked what was going on and uh, Lucian told him. And then he went back out and the, 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 you're too young to remember those, those green dispensers for the soap. In your era, era did you have those? All the uh, uh, rooms where you were scrubbing in had the soap it was a green suspender, in half the time it didn't work. So he had to bang on it to get some soap out of it. And Dr. Gross used to fix all kinds of things. And he had a whole kit for fixing uh, uh, anything he wanted to fix, not, not, not anything complicated, but he, he had it in his office. So when he saw that, he was very frustrated he couldn't get the soap out. So he called his nurse and said, bring me my kit. Oh so his Lucian sweating like mad, and he goes and decides to fix the, the dispenser <laughs> and and he, uh, and he actually fixed it. and of course, he was so smart by that time Lucian had been able to control everything and was able to sew the ductuses the two ends, and they were fine. And he knew that he, he had the intu- intuition to know who he could trust and who he couldn't, and that's very important in surgery. You know, it, it's not like medicine. You, you, it's a there's a part of it that's not perfect science, but the the good surgeons know what that is. And he just knew when to be there. He didn't knew when you're going to get in trouble, and that was one of the that was what, sort of a funny story. I happen to be the medical student there, so I'm I'm the one that's remembered it for a long time. But uh, uh, but that was typical of his uh, personality.
1: So we've at this meeting have heard a lot about Dr. Gross's legacy and you as the next generation of just stalwarts in pediatric surgery. I'd just like to hear from you. What do you want your legacy to be? Because you've made so many contributions that it's, you know, we could pick out any of them and that could be your legacy. But what are you most proud of?
0: Yeah, I would say that my best legacy is the trainees I've trained. Because that uh, gives you another generation to get even better and h- help more kids, and and I think you know that, as I look through that, I obviously am uh, uh, having tr- uh, operated on thousands of patients and saved thousands of lives, is very important in my for me and and uh, is emotionally very deep in me. But I think if I have to pick one, I pick the fact that I have trained a, a large number of pediatric surgeons who have now trained another number of them, who've trained another number of them, which has helped people from all around the world. These weren't just Americans. number of uh, European people, f- Asian people who came in to watch sometimes what I was doing. And, and that's probably the best legacy I could have. Thank you again, Dr. Corrin, for oh, this tremendous pleasure. honor. I'm, I'm honored that you uh, wanted to ask me to talk about myself. Until next time, dominate the day.